You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. There are two ordinances in the church as defined by Scripture, and both of those ordinances have several goals. Um, and one is to unify the body. And both of those ordinances accomplish that. The first ordinance of the local church is baptism. Uh, baptism by immersion. And what that does is that not only the person who is being baptized tells a story uh, in that baptism that they have put their, put their faith in Jesus and that they are not ashamed of the gospel, but what it also does is it unites that person with the local body, the church. So there is unity in the baptism, and every one of us who've put our faith in Jesus and followed that with baptism are unified within the body of Christ. But there is another ordinance or command that the church is supposed to, to remember and to um, well, participate in in the life of the church, and it's communion or the Lord's table. And it, too, has as its goal to not only look back and remember uh, to something that happened in the past that impacts us today, but also changes our future. And it's through this remembrance that unifies the body and it unifies us around a common goal, a common mission, and quite frankly, we all came into the church the same way, and it's through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith in it. So this morning, if you didn't get an opportunity to uh, get a cup uh, as you came in, you can raise your hand right now. We've got some men that would love to provide that to you if you didn't get it on the way in. Uh, as we move into this, if you'll turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul was writing to a church that was very divided, the church at Corinth. And right in the middle of this first letter, Paul brings their attention to the Lord's table. Now, in this particular church, they, they were doing this in a way that was dishonoring to not only to Christ, but to the body. So, so Paul is going to bring some correction into the life of this church. But also, Paul is doing this to help the church see the beauty of unity and that they all came to faith the same way. The profession of faith in Jesus and what he did on that cross, and of course, in resurrection changed all of us, placed us into the body of Christ, the church, and we'll never be the same. So we are called to remember, and as we remember, it unifies us around something very, very important. So if you want to go ahead and open one side of that um, and go ahead and take the wafer out, that would be great. So Paul, writing to this church in 1 Corinthians 11, he says this, For I received from the Lord what also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus says to his men in the upper room, as he breaks that bread, that he's going to institute something in the local church that's going to cause us to remember and cause us to be unified, and that is the breaking of bread that represents his body. What we've got to understand and especially as we go to John today, in just a little while as we get into the book of John, 
One of the things we've got to remember is, is that Jesus, as he dies on that cross, we're not talking about a fable. We're not talking about a story that these 11 men made up. We're not talking about something that the church developed over time, that, that they developed this whole story of, of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, that, that Jesus Christ was a real man. He lived during a period of real history. He was condemned to die by a group of religious people called the Pharisees and Sadducees. That death was confirmed by the Roman government, and it is documented by the Roman government in their historical documents. We have documented outside of Scripture that there was a man named Jesus who was condemned to die. We have Jesus who has a literal body, and the reason I say that is because there are some denominations who believe that that Jesus was some kind of ghost when he was on the cross, or, or that, that Jesus was no longer God when he died on the cross, that he was just a human being, or that he was so much God that he didn't feel any of the pain. And all of that is, well, heresy. What we've got to understand is that as those spikes are being drawn, driven into his hands and his feet, that he felt every bit of that. When the beard was being plucked out of his face, every time they punched him, every time they made fun of him, every time that they kicked him, every time that they abused him, he felt every bit of that. It's not as though Jesus was so much God that he didn't feel the pain or, or so, so less God that somehow God gave him a pass. No, he felt every bit of that. And it was his flesh that was torn and bruised and battered, not because of something that he did wrong, because of what we did wrong. And the reason we want to remember that is because in remembering it, it unifies us. That this is a literal event in real time, in real space. And that Jesus suffered all of that pain to let you know and to let me know just how much God loves us. That Jesus' body was hung for all to see. It was a public crucifixion for God to say to the whole world once and forevermore that he loves you. So as his followers, we take this bread to not only remember, but that we are unified through the body and through his suffering as we are the body of Christ. Father in heaven, we pause and we say thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the suffering that you endured. Father, as we, as we move into this week, as we remember the sufferings, we remember the trials, we remember the crowds saying, crucify, give us Barabbas. We remember Garden of Gethsemane. We remember the arrest. We remember the beatings. We remember the court trials that were an absolute joke. We remember the crowds and their desire for blood. We remember a hill. We remember the streets where you carried the cross. We remember that as they were nailing you to that cross, you cried out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Father, by taking this morsel of bread, we remember. But also, Father, we recognize the great missionary task that we have in front of us and that we're unified in that. Father, not a single person got into your kingdom by being a good person. Not a single person came into the kingdom by doing all the right things. We all came into the kingdom because of faith in you. 
So Father, we take this together to remember. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take this together. Paul says in verse 24, he said, when they had given thanks, in the same way they also took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. If you want to go ahead and peel that cover off there, that would be great. Just as much as the body was real and that, suffered, and that body suffered tremendously, the blood that was shed there was real blood. I know that sounds odd. Of course it was real. But the point of it is, is that that blood was different than any other blood that had ever been shed through crucifixion. The blood that was shed there was a perfect blood. What do I mean by that? Jesus, in the miraculous way that he was conceived, was not born into sin the way you and I were. And that had a purpose and a goal in that when it came to that hour when Jesus was going to die, he was the only one who could rescue us. He was the only one that could extend a rescue to us because he was the one that was not tainted by sin. The blood that he shed there was not only pure and real, but it was perfect and untainted from sin. And, and he was a real Jesus who shed real blood on a real cross, and he died right there. He didn't pass out and then kind of come to himself three days later. Jesus died on that cross. He shed every bit of his blood. And that blood has the amazing ability to set me free from my past. I don't know if, if there's maybe someone here in the room or maybe watching online that you wish you could have a, a new start. You wish you could have a, well, a do-over. Jesus offers exactly that through what he did on the cross, that you can have your past forgiven and never be hold, held against you again, and he can give you a brand new life to what he accomplished there. For those of you who've already experienced that, just think about all that you did, all the, all the heinous things that you did. The blood has the power to forgive you and has forgiven you of every bit of that. If you've put your faith in Jesus, Jesus tucked the wrath upon himself and he shed his blood there so that you wouldn't have to. So as we take this cup this morning, not only does it remind us of the suffering, but it unifies us around this reality that, that we've all been forgiven. For those of us who've put our faith in Jesus, we've all been forgiven. We have a brand new future, a brand new life. And it's because of the blood that made that happen. Father, we pause now. We say thank you for the blood. The world doesn't understand why we would be remembering the bloodshed, the awful bloodshed that you experienced on that mountain that day. But Father, we understand. We understand that it's only through that blood that we're set free. It's only through that blood that we're forgiven it's only through that blood that we have life and purpose and meaning. And it's only through that blood that we are forgiven. Father, we thank you that you have cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, and you do not remember them against us anymore. No work of the law, no good work could have ever pulled that off. Only you could have done that. And you did it because you loved us. So, Father, we take this cup together, remembering not only what you've done, but, Father, we also take it in, uni in unity as a church body set apart for your work and your purpose. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take this together. If you will, turn over to John chapter 15. The text that we have in front of us today is a, well, it's a powerful, powerful word that, that Jesus says to his 
11 men. Remember, Judas has already left. Judas is already in the process of being paid off to, to betray Jesus. And in John 15, we have Jesus saying something that is extraordinarily powerful and extraordinarily shocking. So let's pick it up in verse 18. John chapter 15, verse 18. Listen to what Jesus says in one of these farewell discourses to his men. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you, whom from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming. Whoever, when they, whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes... You may remember that I told them to you. Father, we pause and we say, and we ask, Father, that, that you would guide us in your word this morning. May your name be exalted. And Father, may you truly be worshiped this morning with abandon. Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto you, our King and our Redeemer. We ask it in his name. Amen. I have learned over the years, and I am guilty as anybody, that we all love new things. And, and we love new things because we think the new thing is better than the old thing, whatever the old thing is. So we, so we constantly pursue these new things, thinking that the new thing is better than the old thing. And well, this has never been more real than it has the last few weeks. It seems like ever since I've lived in Lumberton, I've had more problems with home appliances than in my entire life. It seems like every time I turn around, something else was breaking down. And I fixed these appliances over and over again, and the, last, the most recent thing that laid down is our microwave. And my goodness, you have no idea how much you use a microwave until it breaks down. And then you realize, man, we depend on that thing a lot. Now, this microwave that just laid down is a new microwave because I hadn't had about a couple of years. Because the old microwave that was new also laid down, and now I'm in a situation where I'm going to have to buy another microwave. Well, what's interesting to me is that my mom and dad have a microwave sitting on their countertop that they bought in 1983. <laughs> I remember when dad carried that thing in. I mean, it was a huge thing. I didn't even know what it was. I think I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 at the time. And I had, my mind was blown that you could put some food in this thing, and in two minutes I could have an omelet or I could have some popcorn. I love that thing. And that thing is still working today just as good as it did the day my dad carried it into the house. And yet I'm on microwave number three, and if I go buy another one tomorrow, I'll be on microwave four within two years. What in the world's going on? It's because we love new things. New things are 
flashy and shiny. They got more buttons on them. My mom and dad's microwave just got a few little buttons, and that's all it has. Some, the original ones had the old dial. Remember, we got, still got one upstairs. Things last forever. But we think the new thing's better than the old thing because the new thing is flashy and pretty and shiny. Did you know that there was a new thing that came to Lumberton one time years ago? There was a new thing that came. Don't know exactly when it was. But there was a new thing that came to Robinson County, and it was Christianity. If you go back in history and you, you look, you'll, you'll notice that, that Christ was brought to this community and, and people began to put their faith in Jesus. And then not so long after that, buildings began to be built where people could gather and worship. And we have buildings all over our community that were built many, many, many generations ago. You can drive down through our streets and you can see churches that have been sitting in those locations for well over 100 years or more. And it was the new thing, and, and what was happening at that moment, and not just in Robinson County, but all these counties and communities all across North Carolina, Christianity comes in, and people begin to put their faith in Jesus, and people begin to build buildings and put steeples on top of them, and then, and then church begins to be the central focal point of the community long before technology and long before YouTube and long before cell phones and anything else. The church was the center of the community. That's where you went to meet, meet new people. It's where you made friendships. It's where your kids made friends with other kids that maybe they went to school with. It was in that church where there was always something going on, an activity, right? There was always some kind of activity going there. And, and on any given Sunday morning, if you were to drive down the streets of Lumberton back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, here's what you'd see. You'd see entire families holding hands, walking down the sidewalk, all dressed in suits and dresses, going to maybe Godwin Heights or First Baptist or one of the other churches in town or maybe out in the country, the place would be packed out. As a matter of fact, you, you wouldn't dare run for office, whether that be Board of Education or any other entity. You would not dare run for office unless you were connected to a local church. And you could put that in the ads in the newspaper. I've been a longtime member of such and such church. You wouldn't hear of it because... In the culture at that time, it was just expected that you would go to church. You see, it was the new thing. And for a long time, it was the new thing. But guess what? There's a new, new thing. And now that there's a new, new thing, what was new now seems kind of old. As you can imagine, the culture's changed drastically. We were, we were once pre-Christian. And then we were... Christian, and I hate to tell you this, and some of you may not even believe me, but if you're watching anything I'm going, watching going on in the community, you'd have to agree with me that we are now post-Christian. The new thing that was the new thing that would change your life, the new thing that was the new thing that you gathered and it was life and there was things happening, the new thing has now become the old thing because a new thing has come on the scene. You know what the new thing is? The new thing is, well, it's all about you. We don't need a God anymore because you can be God. You can determine who you are. You can determine what you want to be as far as your sexuality. And what really needs to happen, and this is coming from all directions, what really needs to happen is we need to cast off the old thing because the old thing, well, it's repressive. The old thing, which used to be the new thing, but it's now the old thing. The old thing needs to be cast off because you need to embrace this new thing. And this new thing says, well, you live any way you want to live. You should not have any kind of restrictions on your life. If we go back in time, we can find this back, well, in the 20s and the 30s where we had the Scopes trial and 
The, the idea of, of we came from nothing, we, we, we are descendants of apes, or we are creations in God's image. And then in the, in the local education institutions and the higher learning, they begin to debate and talk about, you know, if we could just cast off this Christianity thing, cast off all of these restrictions because that's preventing us from living our full life then the new thing would be the new thing and we can get rid of the old thing with the new thing and the new thing's far better. The new thing is where it's at now. The new thing. And the new thing is this, that we need to move on from Christianity. We need to move on from the restrictions. We need to move on from this whole idea of Christmas, birth of a Savior, and Easter resurrection and, and death of a king. We need to move on. As a matter, matter of fact, for Christmas, if we could just focus more on Santa Claus, that would be great. And if, and if Easter, if we could just focus more on bunnies and eggs, that would be wonderful. Just let it be known now for anyone who's watching and, and anyone in the house, let it just be known right now that, the, that this week for me is about a king who came to save me and who died on a cross in my place and resurrected three days later, period. Just let it be known right now, that's, that's where I'm at. That's where my family is. A shift has occurred. And in that shift, there, there is now no common knowledge about Christianity now. If you have a conversation with someone in their 20s to 30s, and you bring up the idea of King David, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. You, you bring up Noah's Ark, and they're like, what are you even talking about? They have, they have no working knowledge at all of what used to be common knowledge among everyone in your community. Jesus has something very hard to say to his disciples, and it's very important that he say it. It's very important that we hear it today. And Jesus, after he's been with his men in these, in these last hours that he's going to be with them before they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's got something very important to say to his men. And, and what he's got to say to his men comes off the heels of Jesus saying this, that guys, unless you stay connected to me, unless the branches stay connected to the vine, there's no way you're going to bear fruit. That I've called you out from the world to go back and love a world that, quite frankly, is not going to love you back. So he tells his men that they're going to be known for their love. But now the problem with that is, is that when you love someone, you expect and hope to get love back. But that's not going to be the case. You see, walking with Jesus, and you may have already found this out, doesn't bring the world's applause. I got woke up to this when I was 16 when I put my faith in Jesus and I went back to my high school thinking everybody was going to celebrate like my family did. They didn't. Oh, he's got religion. Oh, he'll be over it. Just give him time. Look at verse 18. I want you to, I want you to hear these words. I want them to, to resonate deep within you. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear what he says to you. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus says that if we're going to be in union with him, if we are, if we are going to name the name of Jesus and we are going to say that we are his followers, that we're his disciples, it's almost as though Jesus is saying here that you can expect to not be embraced by the world at large. It's almost as though Jesus is saying that we might be hated for that fact. It, it sounds as though Jesus might be saying that just as much as they hated him, they're going to hate you. Why is that? Well, because you are 
as we've said before, the hands and feet of Jesus. You are the incarnation of Jesus to the world through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' ministry continues in you. Jesus says he was hated first, and you'll be hated next. The, the fact that, that you were baptized and, and the fact that you participated in the Lord's Supper just a little while ago, it says that you identify with him. Now notice what Jesus says next, verse 19. If you were of the world, then the world would love you as its own. So, so we've got an option here, folks. We, we have an option. The option is, is if your goal is to be loved by the world, then all you've got to do is align yourself with the world, and guess what the world will do? The world will go, yay, you're one of us. You see, I'm convinced that inside of every one of us adults, there's still that middle schooler who's alive and well. You know what it was like to be a middle schooler? I've tried to forget it. It wasn't a pretty thing for me. Um, I, I, I pray for our kids and teens often because it's hard being a middle schooler, high schooler in this culture we live. But inside of every one of us adults, there's a middle schooler. And you know what that middle schooler still likes? That middle schooler still likes to be liked. That middle schooler wants to be accepted, just like it was when you were in middle school or high school. You want to fit in. You don't want to be the odd man or odd woman out. You, you want to fit in, so you try to align with maybe the, the sports kids or the, the smart kids or, or whatever subgroup there is. You try to fit in somewhere because the last thing you ever want to be is to be isolated out from the group, right? You, you don't want to be that guy or that woman over there. You, you want to be part of the group. Well, guess what? That's alive and well in every one of us as adults. Jesus says, hey, if you're of the world, the world will love you. If you go along with the insanity of this world, the world's going to embrace you, no matter how insane it is. If you'll just agree with the world, then the world will say, hey, you're one of ours. The problem with that is, is that if you put your faith in Jesus, you're not one of them. By default, you've been called out and separated. You, you have been called out of darkness, and now you're in light. You, you've been adopted by the Father. And as such, you are sons and daughters of the creator of this universe. And as such, you have a purpose in this world, and you can't go back. Listen, folks, there is no back to go to. He says, yeah, the world will love you if you'll just do what they say and believe what they tell you to believe and live the way they tell you to live. Look at this. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I know that's a strong thing to think. I know, I know that's a hard phrase to get our arms around, but listen. More now than ever in my lifetime, when I look at the world stage and I see what's going on, both politically and culturally, we have got to come to the conclusion, folks, that what we're doing here this morning and your faith in Jesus is not applauded by the culture in which we live. Can you, can you see what I'm seeing in the fact that there is a trajectory, there's a trend where we're heading, and that trend and trajectory where we're heading is for you and I, as followers of Jesus, to be more ostracized and to be pushed to the, mud, to the edges of society more and more. Now, I'm not trying to get up here and say some prophecy because I'm not a prophet. I'm just looking at what I'm seeing, and I'm seeing what I'm looking at, and the conclusion is this, Christianity is no longer the new thing. So, if your goal is to be liked by our culture, you have a hard road ahead of you.
Because how are you going to, on the one hand, name the name of Jesus, and on the other hand, follow what the world tells you to follow? He says that to these men, these men have to hear this because they are going to carry forth the ministry after Jesus' ascension. Listen to what he says in verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So, so not only do, does, does the world hate you, and listen, it doesn't matter if we go back to the time when everything was flourishing in the local church, there was still a hatred for Christ and the church. You just didn't see it as evident as you do today. Jesus says, don't think for a minute that you're going to be able to follow me and that you're somehow going to get a pass on suffering. You see, I think the American church, the, the churches overseas, the churches in the Middle East, the church in China, the church in, in, in very hard areas, they understand this. Matter of fact, I couldn't even preach that message there. They understand persecution and they're standing. They understand what it means to be hated by their governor. They understand what it means to not have a constitution that gives them the freedom to, to, to practice their religion and freedom. They understand that. They've got that. They know what it's like to live underground. They know what it's like to keep a copy of God's word hidden. They know what it's like to have to share the gospel under the radar. But for you and I, for all of our life, what Jesus is saying here seems almost foreign, does it not? But hatred leads to persecution. And Jesus says just because a servant thinks that, maybe a servant who, who thinks, oh no, that's the master's problem. The master's the one who's going to suffer. Jesus says, don't think that way. Don't think that the servant is somehow going to get a pass. If the master suffered, then certainly the servants are going to suffer as well. He says that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. I have to wonder... If the reason we don't experience the hatred is because we've came to this place where we found this happy medium. You know what the happy medium is? The happy medium is, is we've figured out how we can live the way the world wants us to when we're with them. And we can live the way the church expects us to live while we're here in this building. And we've come to this place where we can have it both ways and kind of live it out both ways. In my day growing up, they used to call this straddling the fence. I know that's kind of an old term having one foot in the world, one foot in the church, and trying to live that out? Could it be that the fact that we don't see it, don't experience it, is because we've not been living in the name of Jesus the way we're proclaiming here? Could it be that we've, we've been able to figure out some way to, to live the way our friends live during the week, but turn that off when we pull in the parking lot here? Jesus says, if you follow me, you can expect to be hated, and you can expect some trouble. Every Jesus follower all down through the history of time has experienced that kind of hatred, that kind of trouble. For some areas of the world, persecution is just how you live if you're going to follow Jesus. N notice what else Jesus says here. He says, verse 21, he says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Not only do they not, do not know God the Father, but they don't know Jesus the Son. For Christmas, it's Santa Claus. For Easter, it's a bunny. People driving up and down Roberts Avenue right now are looking over here at this building, and they're seeing all these cars parked out here, and they're going, what happens there every week? 
Your neighbors that see you get in your car to come here every week, they're thinking, why do they do that? Why do they sleep in? What, what is compelling them to go to that building that has a cross on it? They don't know God the Father. They don't know the Son. And we live in an age right now where the understanding of the gospel and understanding of God's word is at an all-time low. He says, it's on the account of these things and on the account of you knowing his name and calling his name. The very fact that you name the name of Jesus, the very fact that you follow him sets you at odds with the world. The world says, we need to do away with all of this stuff because you are a detriment to society. You and your ideas that come out of Scripture is holding society back. The fact that you follow a Jewish carpenter who was put on a cross tells the world we need to get rid of this. Make no mistake about it. When Paul said in Ephesians 6, he said this to that church in Ephesus. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities in high places. Don't you think for a moment that there are not people with power and money and influence that would love to see this place and all the others like it shut down for good? I'm not trying to raise some flag of prophecy and warning here. I'm just simply saying, look at the times we're in, and if you look closely, you'll see that there is deep hatred for what you believe. Deep hatred for the fact that we gather here. Deep hatred for the fact that this week you're going to be focused on the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. The fact that you named his name, the fact that, that in your house, for you in your house, you serve the Lord. That is something that must be dealt with because that's the old that must be cast off. Listen to what else Jesus says here. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. What is Jesus talking about? Is he saying that these Pharisees and religious rulers were somehow sinless until he showed up? And then when he showed up and did all the works, did all the miracles, did all the teachings, then now all of a sudden they're sinners? No. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that we're already sinners, but there's one specific sin that he's talking about. And it's the same sin that's keeping you out of the kingdom of God. It's the same sin that's keeping you from enjoying this incredible relationship with Jesus. And it's the sin of unbelief. Jesus performed miracles. He taught like nobody else had taught. There was never a prophet like him. There was never a teacher like him. And when Jesus does all of these public miracles for the world to see, what should have happened is the Jewish leadership, the religious rulers, should have embraced him. They should have recognized him as Messiah. They should have recognized him that this is the man that Isaiah talked about. This is the man that Jeremiah talked about. This is the man that Ezekiel talked about. But instead, they reject him, and they decide early on in his ministry that he must be put to death. And get this, they do it in the name of religion. They accused Jesus of blasphemy, of speaking against God when he was God in the flesh. All of his miracles, all of his teachings pointed to that reality. And so they are going to put him to death in the name of their religion because they didn't know Jesus and they didn't know the Father. They didn't know and would not accept this Messiah. And instead, he was a threat to their power, a threat to their money, a threat to their influence. And the only conclusion they could come to is he must be put to death. Jesus says to his men, yes, you're going to be hated. Yes, you're going to be persecuted. 
But notice what he says in verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Wow. Well, wouldn't it have been better for Jesus to look at his men and say, hey, guys, it's going to be a wonderful road. You're going to get to walk. You're going to have all the money you need. You're going to have all the friends you need. You're never going to feel alone. You're never going to feel isolated. You're never going to be mocked. You're going to have the perfect life. So guys, get ready. You're just going to have the best life until you grow old and die and everyone celebrates the life that you have. Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that be more encouraging? That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says you're going to be hated, you're going to be persecuted, and the very men that he's talking to are going to experience hatred, they're going to experience persecution, and all of them are going to be martyred in horrendous ways. If Jesus says, I've told you that you're going to be hated, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be rejected, why? So that to keep you from falling away? Does that make sense to you? It doesn't make sense to me. Why would that keep me from falling away? Well, on the one hand, Jesus is not hiding anything behind his back here. And this is what I love about the gospel. The gospel puts in front of you the clear option of either following the world or following Jesus. But make sure you understand this. By putting your faith in Jesus, salvation is free, but following him will cost you everything. It'll cost you everything. It'll cost your friendship with the world. It'll cost you your fame. It'll cost you your fortunes. Because you're not living for you anymore. You're living for something greater than yourself. I'm sorry if back when somebody shared Jesus with you, they left all that part out. But following Jesus by default is taking up a cross. There's shame involved. Church, we cannot reconcile with the world. There are churches all over North Carolina who are trying to figure out some way to reconcile with the world so that the world will love them. But when Jesus says right here, clearly, the world is going to hate you because you've been called out from them. They hate what you stand for. So Jesus is telling his men this before they ever begin their ministry. He's looking at them. He's saying, make clear you understand what I'm saying here. You are going to be hated for my name. Just as I was hated because a servant is not greater than his master. So what does this mean? How, when, when Jesus says this to his men, how, how are they to respond to this? How do we respond today? Well, I think there's five responses that we need to look at. Five responses that I think we need to consider. Here, here's the first response. Many just say, I'm done. I'll abandon the faith. I'm done. Maybe you've seen on uh, news channels or websites that over the last four or five years, there have been several Christian authors, several Christian worship band leaders who have come out and publicly said, that they are now abandoning the Christian faith. Now, I would, ar- ar- I would argue with you that they were never born again to start with. They might have had their songs on K-Love. They might have had their books in the Lifeway bookstore. But if they can walk away, they were never born again. They've been fooling themselves all this time. So some are choosing because I can't reconcile with the I can't make the world and Christianity work. And quite frankly, Christianity is offensive to me and my friends. So I, I'm going to walk away from that. I'm just going to go with the world. I've seen this. I've seen this with families where a family member that they love 
comes out and says, I'm gay, I'm homosexual, I'm lesbian, or I'm gay, or I'm bisexual, and raised in the church, drugged the church every time the doors was open, and now the family is wrestling with what they know the scriptures to say versus their love for this family member whom they still love and should, who's now in a lifestyle that they've heard their whole life taught that is a sin against God. How, what are they going to do? Well, I know families who said, I'm done with the church. My family member is more important. So they walk away. The draw of the world is a powerful draw, and it's coming in from all directions. It's coming in through your streaming services. It's coming in through your radio in your car. It's coming through your cell phone. It's coming through your social media platforms. It's coming from all directions. And all of that has as its goal to water down your faith, to get you focused on something else so that the world will embrace you. But for many, they've decided to abandon the faith. Here's the second one. Well, I'm not going to abandon my faith. I'm just going to cut a deal. You know what a deal looks like? I'm going to mix the world and my faith together, and I'm going to have it my way, just like McDonald's promises. You can have it your way. Well, this is that kind of faith, which is really no faith at all. I'm going to take the world, and I'm going to live like the world as I want to, so the world will applaud me. But when I come into this building, I'm going to sing the praises of Jesus, and I'm going to somehow try to reconcile those two, and I'm going to live that out because I still have some wild oats to sow, So they, they cut a deal. Uh, another way that people cut deal is, here's what they do, they compartmentalize. Well, what I do for Jesus, that's, that's only on Sunday, right? So, so what I'm going to do for Jesus, I'm going to do on Sunday. I'm going to combine it to that, that 301 North Roberts Avenue. I'm going to keep that there. And then on Monday, when I go to the golf course, I'm going to do this. And then, and then when I go out with my friends partying on Wednesday, I'm going to do this. And, and, then, and then when Sunday comes back, I might feel bad about it, but I, I might pray a little prayer. But when I come into church, I'll sing some songs. It'll make me feel good. And in my mind, I've got this all figured out. And the reality is, is if you can do that long enough without any conviction, the Bible is very clear about this. If you can do this long enough without any conviction, guess what the Bible calls you? The Bible calls you lost. Cut a deal. Here's another way to cut a deal. Religion deals with feelings and opinions and preferences while science deals with reality, facts, and solid conclusions. That's what our world has been telling us for, gosh, 100 years. You can have your religion. Just don't think for a moment that this speaks to reality. I mean, we all know that that a guy named Jesus, we'll, we'll give to you that he was a historical man that lived and died, but don't you dare come at us thinking that you're, you're going to expect us to believe a miracle that, that a man who was dead for three days rose back to life. Let's talk about some bunnies and eggs for a while. Let's cut a deal. Here's a third one for you, you might not have thought about. We have abandoned in the faith, cutting a deal. But here's something the church did. I don't, I don't know that the church did it. I'm not talking about this church. I'm just talking about the church in general. I don't know that there was a meeting or, or what happened, but, but over time the church began to focus more on trading sheep with other churches than reaching the lost with the gospel. And here's what happened. 
We began to focus more on growth through transfer rather than growth by expanding the gospel into lost areas and taking it to dark places. It's a whole lot easier to attract people from other churches by having the best of the best of the best of the best. It's a whole lot easier to attract other people to your church and, and grow your church that way, which I would argue is not growth at all, than to actually go out into a lost and dying world who may return your love with hatred and deal with a broken society. So what did the church do? I don't think it was an actual meeting. I think it just happened. Over time, it just got easier to grow churches by taking sheep from other churches. <laughs> so we'll build bigger and better. And don't hear me saying that you transferring in here is a bad thing. We'll love you. We'll, we'll help you to grow up in your faith. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that that's not what Christ has called us to do. Christ has not called us to trade sheep. Christ has called us to take the lost, take the gospel to a lost and dying world, to expand the kingdom. And then there's this fourth one. And this is what I call the Christian bubble. Let's just live in a bubble. So the world's in a mess, and we're going to give up on the idea that the gospel still speaks to that mess. We, we just sung a little while ago that, that Jesus is enough. For this movement, for this church, for these believers, they don't actually believe that Jesus is enough. So what they do is, is they, they kind of cordon themselves off in a little gospel gut bubble, little Christian bubble. All their friends are Christians. All, everything they do is Christian. They, they don't have any lost friends. They don't have anybody that they can point to. And quite frankly, they don't care. They don't want to have to deal with lost people because lost people use foul language. Lost people look different, talk different, act different. So, so they, they are on their own. So we're going to close ourselves off. And sure, our children and our grandchildren, we want to lead them to Christ. But those folks out there that are addicted to drugs and saying all kinds of things and living, oh, we don't want to do that. We, we're, we're the sanctified few here, and, and we just want to have our four no more. The Christian bubble. The hatred of the world can drive us to abandon our faith, which you had no faith at all. Try to cut a deal and try to make both work. We just simply focus on getting people into the building who are already born again, or we're going to live in a bubble. But here's a fifth option, and I think it's the only option moving forward, and here it is. Live out a vibrant, contagious faith in front of a world that, yeah, may hate you because of it. I wish I had another option for you. I don't. The option is this. Love Jesus Love your neighbor. Put a smile on your face, regardless of what anybody says about you or says to you. Here's the facts, folks. They're going to talk about you anyway. They're, they're, going to, they're going to rag about your Facebook post anyway. They're going to put you down because it makes them feel better. Well, hey, let's give them something to talk about. Let's give them a topic. If somebody calls me some kind of crazy Jesus freak, then so be it. I don't have a problem with that. I'm good with that. No problem at all. I'd rather be known for following Jesus than known for following the world. You've got a choice to make. Every disciple in this room, every day you get up, you're going to have to die to yourself. That's what Paul said. He said, I have to crucify myself daily. Why? Because there's something in me that still wants the world to applause me, to applaud me. That's that middle schooler. I have to reject that. I have to do it daily. But you've got a choice to make. And it really is not hard to see the differences here. You're either going to go with the new thing, the new thing that is really not new at all, 
the new thing that says embrace you, make you the center of your universe. You, you, you live out your sexuality the way you want to. You don't have any restrictions or any, anything that binds you to anything of the past. So the new thing is all about you. So you have a choice here. Join the new thing that the world is saying is what's best for you. Or you can focus on the old thing, which is not old at all. And the old thing is, is that Jesus Christ lived and died and resurrected and is coming again. He lives inside of you, or he can if you've not put your faith in him yet. And Christ has called us to a mission that he is going to fulfill through us. So we might as well just be happy about it. Understand the world's going to hate you for it. And let that roll off your back like water off a duck's back. Don't even give it a second thought. Love Jesus with all that you are. Love your neighbors yourself. Even if they return that love with hatred. Father in heaven, we see where our society and our culture is going. We see it. It's clear. And Father, I think the choice is clearer today as it's ever been. That either we're going to follow the world or we're going to follow you. There is no middle ground. And just as Joshua said as he was leading the people and actually was getting ready to, to pass off the scene, he looked at his people and he says, choose this day who you're going to serve. Choose today. Choose right now. And Father, that same challenge comes to us today. Choose this day who you're going to serve. But Father, may they have their eyes wide open that if they choose incorrectly, if they choose the wrong thing, if they surrender their life to the wrong thing, there are consequences connected to that. So Father, our hope is found nowhere else but in you. And may every person in this room and all those watching online find their hope completely and totally in you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.